Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters Podcast. This is Thought Leaders with Joe Craig. My guest today is Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges. He's one of the authors of Future War and the Defense of Europe. Frederick Ben Hodges holds the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He was previously commander of the United States Army Europe from 2014 to 2017. General Hodges, welcome to the podcast. Joe, thank you very much for the privilege and the opportunity. General, you had two co-authors on this book, Future War and the Defense of Europe. Can you maybe start off by telling our listeners you know, who they were and how you came together to work together on the book? Sure. Professor Julian Lindley French, who's a British strategic thinker and writer who lives in Alphen, the Netherlands. And then, of course, General John Allen, United States Marine Corps, who is currently the president over at Brookings, but had served as Commander ISAF in Afghanistan. I've known both of them for several years, but I'd never written a book myself. And they had done some work together and decided to write this book, Future War in the Defense of Europe, and asked me to join them, and I was thrilled that they did. Well, to start off our discussion, let me play devil's advocate. Why should America be concerned about the defense of Europe? Why is NATO good for the U.S.? Well, of course, that's a fair question and one that taxpayers ought to be asking and why we ought to expect our European allies to carry a larger share for their own security. But American forces are not in Europe to protect Europe. Americans are not in Germany guarding Germany. The economic relationship between the United States and Europe, specifically the EU, is the largest economic relationship we have. So even if our European allies did not pay one euro or pound or krona for their defense, American prosperity still depends on a Europe that is prosperous, stable, and secure. So it's in our economic interest that Europe is secure. Secondly, we have about 30,000 U.S. Army permanently stationed in Europe and about 25,000 U.S. Air Force permanently stationed in Europe and then several thousand U.S. Navy permanently stationed in Europe. They are there to enable the United States to have strategic reach, not just in Europe, but in Eurasia, the Middle East, and in Africa. So in other words, having forward base capability in all of our services and intelligence sharing and so on is to our benefit. So that's why Europe matters. And then the final reason I would add is even with our significant defense budget, the requirements for U.S. Department of Defense are far beyond what the Department of Defense has to meet those requirements. And this is why the administration has placed such emphasis on allies. And all of our best and most reliable allies come from Europe as well as Canada and Australia. That's why Europe matters to us. Absolutely. One of the things you mentioned with strategic outreach, you know, NATO has the goal of being on a 360-degree alliance, but different groups within the alliance kind of perceive different threats. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. NATO exists. It's grown from 12 nations at its founding in 1949 to 30 nations now, and there are at least three other countries that are in the queue wanting to get into NATO. NATO was created for collective defense of all of its members. It's the most successful alliance in the history of the world. It's not perfect. There's challenges every year. I mean, big challenges every year, but yet nations still line up wanting to join NATO. Nobody's knocking on the door of the Kremlin saying, hey, we really want to get back in. They want to join NATO because of the success that it represents. Now, one of the challenges inside the alliance is that there are different threats based on where you are geographically inside the alliance. Obviously, Portugal, Spain, Italy, France, Greece, 
tend to be much more focused on North Africa, the Mediterranean, because of Islamic extremism or the massive refugee crisis, people coming across the Med. That's where they tend to focus. Norway, for example, Canada, very concerned about the Arctic, understandably. Mm-hmm. Eastern European allies, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Bulgaria, Romania, Turkey, focused on Russian threat or the greater Black Sea region. So you do have different things pulling at you. And of course, if you used to be under the thumb of the Kremlin, whether you were in the Soviet Union or you were part of the Russian Empire or part of the Warsaw Pact, all of them see the number one threat is Russia. But if you're further away from it, you don't have the same degree of anxiety, let's Mm -hmm. say. That doesn't mean I don't have complete confidence that the French or the Germans or the Portuguese won't show up if Russia does invade Lithuania, for example. I mean, there are German troops in Lithuania now, Mm -hmm. but the sense of urgency is not the same, and that is reflected in defense spending. Well, that sense of urgency might be part of your response to this, but why is Europe not in a position today to face these threats? If you acknowledge that there's a threat as a political leader, then you have to do something about it. And I think in way too many European capitals, there is a lack of willingness to acknowledge that the Kremlin represents bad intentions. That doesn't mean we can't work with them. We don't want to have a stable, predictable relationship, as the Biden administration has said. Of course we want that. Same thing with the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing. Of course you would like to have a relationship with them for all the economic reasons, as well as other issues that we face as a global community. But the problem is there is a reluctance in Berlin, Paris, Brussels, London even, and frankly, sometimes here in Washington, to acknowledge that the Kremlin is not interested in a win-win outcome. They're only interested in a win outcome. And so I hear it frequently. You got to keep the dialogue open with the Russians. And frankly, where most people were, I live in Frankfurt, they have a hard time finding a lot of people that would say, yes, Russia is a threat. Well, if we do focus on Russia and the Kremlin, what are their strategic goals? What are they trying to get and how are they adapting the military to enable those goals? The Kremlin's number one strategic objective, of course, is defense of the motherland. I mean, that's always been the psyche of whoever occupied the Kremlin from Peter the Great until today. The second, it's how they do that That's the problem. I mean, of course, every nation should defend their sovereignty. Russia's perception of what it's entitled to do to protect its sovereignty is the problem. They want to make sure that all the nations on their periphery are unable to integrate to the West. They want to keep them close, not necessarily as allies, but as buffers. Mm -hmm. So Belarus, Ukraine, Transnistria, which is a sliver of Moldova, Ukraine, obviously, Georgia, all of these places where you have Russian troops, so-called peacekeepers, and my Polish friends spell it P-I-E-C-E, keepers, because when the Russians show up, they keep a peace. That's how they see they're entitled to protect themselves by occupying countries on their periphery. And then you've got the Arctic. Back in the month of February, for the first time in history, a ship sailed over the Arctic in the month of February. First time in history. Of course, that ship had to follow a Russian icebreaker, but nonetheless, it's only going to get better in terms of navigation across the Arctic year-round. That is a 
strategic change. And Russia is already leaning forward. And, and they've declared that, as you heard, Foreign Minister Lavrov a few weeks ago said, that's our land. Right. And so our great Navy is going to have to challenge them for freedom of navigation in the north. These are their priorities. And of course, the other priority is to undermine NATO, undermine the European Union. It's not like when I was a lieutenant, when there was a big red arrow that we envisioned going across Europe. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's if they can do something on very short notice and challenge the alliance, and if the alliance fails to respond to a something that should be Article 5, for example, in Lithuania or Norway or Romania, then they will have achieved their goal because then they would have broken the, the trust that comes with this Article 5 right. commitment. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the big red arrow on, on the mainland, and I was going to ask you about that. You know, obviously in the Cold War, we were concerned about Soviet armored forces coming through the Folder Gap. So where is today's Folder Gap? Is it the Baltics? Is that really where NATO is anticipating or preparing for the next attack? That is a great point. For sure, the Russians will not do us the favor of advertising where they're going to attack. I mean, when I was a lieutenant in northern Germany, I expected to see a column of T-72s coming over the horizon, and that's how we knew it was on. Mm. Now, it's already on, actually, because of the use of cyber, the use of disinformation, the use of misinformation, the flaunting of international law. They started their modernization program in 2007. They invaded Georgia in 2008. They saw that we didn't do anything. They still occupied 20% of Georgia, by the way, 13 years later. They saw that we didn't do anything after the Syrians, the Assad regime, crossed President Obama's red lines in 2013, used chemical weapons. The Russians saw we didn't do anything there. The Assad regime is only still in power because of Kremlin support. And then they saw that we didn't really do anything after they invaded Ukraine in 2014. Yes, the EU put sanctions on the Kremlin, which slowed down modernization, but it didn't influence behavior. NATO got better, mm -hmm. but it didn't change Russian behavior. And here we are seven years later, they're killing Ukrainian soldiers every week despite a ceasefire. And they saw how everybody almost panicked with this surge of up to 100,000 Russian troops around Ukraine and Crimea here just a few weeks ago. And then they saw the huge sigh of relief after Minister Shoigu said, okay, the exercise is over. Right. Nobody should believe that the exercise is over. About 10% of those troops went back to their barracks. Everybody else stayed there, including the Russian Navy in the Black Sea. And I predict that the Russians are counting on Europe to go on holiday in the month of August. The United States will be on summer holiday and also shifting our attention to China and Germany elections in September. And the Russians are all still sitting there in Ukraine. Wow. So when you ask, where is the new full to gap? I think it's partly Ukraine. It's partly the Sawalki corridor that separates Kaliningrad from Belarus. And it's partly, you can be sure, Norway, that this is not a joke to them. This is not an academic exercise to them that Russia is expanding their capabilities in the Arctic. Well, you know, NATO has forward deployed some troops on its eastern flank to act as a deterrent to you know, future adventurism. They're small units, so they're intended to act as a tripwire. But as you reference Paul Cornish in the book, tripwire only works if something happens when it's tripped. So what would NATO's military's response be if those forces are attacked? And what are the logistical challenges in reinforcing those small troops? Great. So deterrence is all about capability and demonstrated will to use capability so that the adversary or potential adversary is confident or believes that they will fail or it'll be so costly that it's not worthwhile. I mean, that's the theory 
of deterrence, which is hard to explain to political leaders and civilians because you're talking about a lot of money that you hope you never have to use mm -hmm. in effect. Underpinning this capability has to be speed, speed of recognition of what's happening, speed of decision, and then speed of assembly. How fast can you move? You have to we have to demonstrate that we can move as fast or faster than Russian Federation forces to signal to them that we are prepared with real capability. Right now, we can't move fast enough, so that is a real challenge for us. But let's say that deterrence fails, and you do end up with Russian formations preceded by cyber and disinformation and all the other things that are happening, perhaps some kind of a crisis that starts at a Baltic seaport where you will have a lot of ethnic Russians working, and then the Kremlin says, we have no choice. These are Russians that are being persecuted. It's our duty to protect all Russians, which, by the way, they have said in the past few years right. to establish the pretext, okay, or the water crisis down in Ukraine. Keep in mind that Ukraine is not NATO, so that's a different set of considerations. But let's say they go into Lithuania. I am 100% convinced and sure that the alliance would immediately go into consultation, determine that yes, this is Article 5, and that the nations would agree that this an armed attack on one is indeed an armed attack on all, and then the nations decide what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. There is no magic laser beam that Article 5 is not triggered, it's still a political decision. Right. But I'm sure that the alliance will respond appropriately there. Paul Cornish, of course, is right. You have to have some capability. And those enhanced forward presence battle groups are not little islands by themselves. The U.S. EFP battle group in Poland, for example, not only is it very capable, it's integrated into a Polish brigade, which is then integrated into a multinational division. Same for the British-led EFP battle group in Estonia, the Canadian-led battle group in Latvia, and the German-led battle group in Lithuania. Right. Well, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, speed is going to be key in any kind of future war. So even if politicians do it together and, and declare Article 5 quickly, there still needs to be a, a quick response. Is there changes to the NATO command structure that can adapt so that they can act quicker in a crisis? Well, that is a really good question. The Command structure in any coalition or alliance, of course, is a result of compromise. I mean, because nations are going to expect to have key positions. They are going to want headquarters on their territory to the maximum of their ability. And you have to exercise. And so we have some challenges here. I think SHAPE, Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, which is the headquarters for the SACUR, Supreme Allied Commander, in Mons, Belgium, has developed graduated defense plans for the Baltic region, for example, that lay out what's required, but there's limits on what you can do without approval of the NAC, the North Atlantic Council, the mm -hmm. civilian leadership of NATO. And so not every nation is real keen on having a full-up war plan that lays out everything the way, say, a U.S. operations plan would have priorities and specific units laid out for it. So, again, this is the nature of an alliance, of any coalition, and I think that exercises like the Defender 21 that are underway right now over in Europe, where we're practicing movements across Europe and, in fact, across the Atlantic, building muscle memory at critical seaports and airports around Europe, mm -hmm. this is all part of it. We have improved over the last couple of years the real capability that's in Central and Eastern Europe. And, I mean, there's significant American capability 
not only permanently stationed, but rotational, that is kind of the steel that everybody else counts on. Right. You had mentioned Defender 21, and as you said, there's been practices where one case you had U.S. Army paratroopers flying all the way from Fort Bragg into Estonia, obviously sending a message. What else should be done to improve these types of exercises going forward? And how can we work with NATO and other partners to improve readiness in Europe? Well, I tell you, it is so impressive when the U.S. Army is able to send paratroopers from Fort Bragg, link up with uh, paratroopers coming from the U.K. and other American paratroopers coming out of Vicenza to orchestrate that. And then the world's greatest air force, of course, is who's getting them there. And they're all able to enter a targeted area to carry out operations. I mean, just over a couple of days to be able to do that is an incredible capability. And that capability is significant, not only because of the actual combat power that gets put on the ground, and people could scoff like, yeah, well, if a tank uh, armored regiment shows up, you've got a problem. I would say the attacking forces would be the ones with the problem because of the capabilities that our guys would bring in, but also all the other enablers that would be showing up from allies in the area and, of course, air power. The bigger point, though, is the symbol of U.S. commitment. This is incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. And you remember I said earlier, deterrence is about capability and demonstrating the will to use the capability. So even here in 2021, the government's priority is getting the economy going again and budget battles are underway as they always are. The United States of America still invests that kind of money to do an exercise like this as a powerful symbol that we are in fact committed and Everybody can see that we have this capability. That's the foundation of deterrence. Right. As you know, it is very expensive, especially in the aftermath of COVID. There's going to be a lot of hard choices coming up. Europe had some discussions about modernizing both you know, nuclear and conventional forces. But with these budgetary restraints, there's not enough to go around. To wrap up, what do you think this should be the priorities? Well, for sure, political leaders have to make really hard choices. There's no doubt about it. Whether you're the United States or Slovenia and everything in between, you got to make hard choices. And political leaders have to be able to explain to their populations, yes, we want to improve domestic infrastructure and health care and all these other issues, but none of that's possible if you're not secure. And you have to be able to explain why this is important. And that takes some political courage, but it's the job of elected officials not the military leaders to explain that. And this is important. Now, of course, the burden is on the military to be good stewards of what we're given in terms of resources, to give the best possible advice and not waste money in procurement processes, poor maintenance, and especially how we take care of the women and men that serve in the armed forces. When it comes to capabilities in Europe, for me, the number one vulnerability is air and missile defense. We absolutely do not have enough to protect all the airports, seaports, infrastructure, population, critical headquarters, that sort of thing. There's not enough, certainly not enough US, but not enough from all the allies. So instead of pounding away about 2%, why don't we specify Germany, Netherlands, you've got to take the lead to provide air and missile defense for the Baltic region, for example. I mean, something like that. Mm -hmm. It's about protecting European citizens, but also European airports and seaports that the alliance would need. That, to me, is the number one vulnerability. I like the Army's emphasis on long-range precision fires. Absolutely what's needed because the Russians have so much air defense that we would have to do several things before attack aviation or even fixed-wing 
could get in close mm-hmm. to support what we need. So this is where long-range precision fires from land forces would be very helpful. Mobility, you've got to be able to move quickly in Europe in pre-crisis conditions to signal to the Russians that we are prepared. And if deterrence fails, then you got to move. And the amount of rivers, lakes, all the obstacles, gaps that have to be crossed, there are significant shortfalls in engineer capabilities, bridges, the weight of tanks today, best tank in the world, but it's still, you're talking about almost 80 tons. Right. To be able to move down European highways, you got to put it on the back of a heavy equipment transport before the war starts. That means your European Union road regulations apply. So these are all considerations. So having wheeled mobility is a real asset to complement having the world's best tank. Having wheeled vehicles that can carry artillery, that can carry ISR platforms, that can carry anti-tank platforms, that can support everything else, that can carry troops, that's an essential capability that all of us need. Well, that's a lot of great wisdom there, important messages for the U.S. and our allies and partners over in Europe. You and your co-authors have done a fantastic job about advising people with the importance of this issue. So, General Hodges, I want to thank you for being our guest today. Joe, thank you. It was a privilege. I love what AUSA does in terms of providing a platform for professional development and things like this. I really am grateful for this opportunity you gave me. And listeners want to remind everyone that his new book is Future War and the Defense of Europe. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's professional association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. Have a great Army Day. Hua.